الحمد للہ الحمد للہ اللذی هدانا لہذا وما کنا لنحتدی لولا ان هدان اللہ وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن محمدًا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وخليله أرسله الله للناس نذيرًا وبشيرًا محمد رسول الله والذين معه أشداء على الكفار رحماء بينهم لقد كان لكم في رسول الله أسوة حسنة لمن كان يرجو الله واليوم الآخر وذكر الله كثيرا من يطع الله ورسوله فقد رشد ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا أوصيكم ونفسي أولا بتقوى الله وطاعته وأحذركم من عسيانه ومخالفة أمره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم واسألهم عن القرية التي كانت حاضرة البحر إذ يعدون في السبت إذ تأتيهم حيتانهم يوم سبتهم شرعا شرعا ويوم لا يسبتون لا تأتيهم كذلك نبلوهم بما كانوا يفسقون Brothers and sisters committed Muslims this this ayah that was just quoted is ayah 163 from Surah Al-A'raf and roughly translated 
and into into English it means and ask them about the town that stood by the sea how its people would profane the Sabbath whenever their fish came to them breaking the water's surface on a day on which they ought to have kept the Sabbath because the fish would not come to them on other than Sabbath days thus did we try them by means of their own dysfunctional behavior. Now before I begin to explain the meaning of this ayah, once again this ayah is from Surah Al-Araf. I want to go into the context and the historical background that necessitated the revelation of the ayah. When Allah's Prophet alayhi wa alihi salatu wassalam reached Medina, one of the communities that happened to be there that was not present in large numbers in Makkah was the Israeli community and they were composed of three factions and I hesitate to call them the Jewish community because the word Jew or Jewish few people can agree as to its definition and so because these Israelis that happened to be in Medina at the time defined themselves according to their race or to the amount of power that they held in Medina or because they regarded themselves in a sense to be exceptional because they had received previous scripture for this reason, it is a lot more accurate to call them Israelis as opposed to Jews. And then obviously, that establishes a connection between them at that time and their counterparts in the world today, who regard themselves to be exceptional for many of the same reasons. And so when, Allah, when Allah's Prophet وسلم, reached Medina, he was asked by Allah to remind them of their own history and how they had tried to play tricks on the guidance that they had received from Allah. Now to set up what happened in this, what this ayah is describing, the Qur'an also goes into some detail 
about how the people of previous scripture were informed about the coming of the final prophet and what his characteristics would be that he would stand against injustice that he would authorize the ma'roof and that he would deconstruct the munkar that he would socialize as-salah and that he would set up a distribution system to distribute the extra wealth of society amongst its members. And so they were aware of the description of Muhammad alayhi wa alihi salatu wassalam long before he came. And in a sense, they were given a preference that they could recognize this final prophet when he came. But in those generations, between the revelation of these verses in the Torah and the coming of Muhammad many, many centuries later, they had time to either eliminate these verses from their holy record or they had time to alter the words in such a way that it would project a different meaning. And so when they finally saw Muhammad alayhi afdalu salah wa atammu taslim when they finally saw him internally they recognized that this is the final prophet. There was no doubt in their mind. But publicly they rejected him. And so these ayat were revealed so that Allah's Prophet could remind them of this history. And he was not only reminding them of their treachery with regard to divine guidance, but he was also relating to them a story that they only knew about. No other faith communities, and especially the unlettered Arabs, they didn't know about this story, about the fish and the town by the sea. And so an allusion to his prophethood is that he was relating to them something about their own history that nobody else knew. And so they knew right away that an unlettered prophet, an unlettered Arab prophet, there's no way on earth that he could know about this story. And that the only way that he could know about this particular story is if he was receiving communication from Allah. And so once again, just by the Prophet relating this story to them, reminding them of this story, they knew that he was Allah's Prophet. So now let's describe what's happening in the ayah. These Israelis at the time of Musa alayhi salam 
They asked him to ask Allah to give them a day of relaxation where they wouldn't have to tend to their civil and commercial duties. A day of devotion to the Lord. And so Allah Ta'ala granted them the Sabbath day which is roughly equivalent to Saturday in the common calendar today. And so on that day they were not supposed to conduct any commercial or business activities. They were not allowed to engage in any worldly pursuits. That day was supposed to be devoted to the service of the Lord in prayer, in the giving of alms, and all other such duties that would cause them to depart from commercial activities, from livelihood activities. And given that this town was located right next to the sea, the main occupation in the town was fishing. And so they would go out during the week and they would fish, and then they would come back into town, sell the fish, or you know, do whatever they had to do with it. But nonetheless, that was the main occupation. And so given that they were not allowed to conduct commercial activities on the Sabbath day, that meant that they could not go out fishing on the Sabbath day. And so then Allah structured things or conditions and circumstances in such a way that on the six days of the week that were not the Sabbath day, there were no fish to catch. No fish would come in to their nets and they, their catch was next to nothing. But then on the Sabbath day, there was an abundance of fish to such an extent that they were just hopping out of the water. So many fish, and yet they were not allowed to fish on that particular day. And this went on for weeks, perhaps months. And so then one of these Israelis came up with a bright idea. He decided that let's cast our nets in the few hours or the day before the Sabbath starts. And then on the Sabbath day we won't go out to fish. And then as soon as the Sabbath is over, when there's an abundance of fish in our nets, caught in our nets, ensnared in our nets, then we'll just go out and collect the catch. And so technically they're not violating the letter of the law, because they're not engaging the fish on the Sabbath day. But the law has a spirit. It not only has a letter. And this kind of dysfunction has been carried into the modern day where you find the that a lot of people who claim to be devoted to that particular flavor of guidance that came from God, that they're very particular about the letter of the law and all of the minutiae of the law, but the spirit is gone. And then as far as the other side of the people of the book is concerned, in sort of a reactionary fashion, they concentrate on the spirit of the law, but there is no law. 
And so as far as the name of that town is concerned, Allah does not mention the name of that town in the Qur'an. And as far as the lesson is concerned, the name of the town is not important. Uh, what the people are doing, how the people are in a sense trying to fool God, that's important. But given that these Israelis know their own history, it could be that they know the name of that town. And over the centuries, if they had any integrity, they may not have changed it. But given their historical character and the way that they effaced the verses in their holy guidance that predicted the coming of Muhammad, they may have changed the name of that town. And that is to evade what was blameworthy about them being residents of that town. And nonetheless, there are many things that could be said about this ayah, the, ayah, the ayat that precede it and the ayat that come after it. The spirit and the letter of the law. People trying to evade responsibility as if God does not see them. But the aspect of it that I'd like to concentrate on today is how people in power try to project an image of themselves as defenders of truth, justice, and the rule of law. When in point of fact, behind the scenes, they are doing everything under the sun to deny the truth, to subvert justice, and to violate the very laws that they are signatories to. And unfortunately, if we look around the world today, the dominant power of culture subjects itself to this paradigm. It says one thing about its public image and spends billions of dollars in creating that public image. And then, because it has power, it legitimizes almost any activity under the sun. Take, for example, the issue of terrorism. And here I'm talking about the label and not the act. For insofar as the wars of aggression are concerned, they've consumed many, many more lives than anything that terrorism has done over the past 50 years. And I'm talking about a difference in the order of magnitudes. But when we talk about terrorism, that label is applied almost exclusively, if not ubiquitously, against Muslims. You've heard the slogan out in the real world, where they say that all Muslims are not terrorists, but all terrorists are Muslims. Well, that slogan is disseminated by a particular power culture. And the ones who shout the loudest and they point the longest fingers at Muslims being the terrorists in the world, they themselves are the greatest purveyors of terrorism. 
Let me give you some examples. And as I give you these examples, keep this particular ayah in mind. And as I go through these examples, I'll reiterate what we are learning from this ayah. Consider the Rohingya, the, the Rohingya or the Rohingya Muslims. It's pronounced both ways. In Burma or Myanmar. This is considered right now to be the most violent and heinous genocide in the world taking place today. There was a des desire on the part of the ethnic Chinese in that country to ethnically cleanse this minority out of Myanmar. But they just couldn't go onto the world stage and say that we're expelling these people or we want to these, expel these people because they're ethnically Bengali. Not even their supporters would accept that logic. So they had to come up with something else. And given the stereotype that has been cultivated with billions and billions of dollars that Muslims are terrorists, they thought that they could get a bright idea, just like the fish example. Why don't we label these guys terrorists? And then it's going to be a lot easier for us to expel them because they're terrorists. They're destabilizing our society. They're killing our people. And now that information has come out, they fomented a false flag operation and said that Muslims went in and killed elements or soldiers in the army and then blamed the whole thing on Muslims. There may have been some Muslim patsies involved here or there. But to punish hundreds of thousands or millions of people collectively for the errant actions of a few is not permitted by the UN Convention on Human Rights, of which all of these people are signatories too. So here we have a situation where the civilian leader of that country is a Nobel laureate, won the Nobel Peace Prize. And so there is a public face that projects an image of truth and justice. And then there are actions behind the scenes that demonstrate that the leaders of that country cannot walk the talk or won't walk the talk. Still on the topic of terrorism, consider the case of the country of India. The railway bombing, the bombing of the parliamentary building, and the bombing of the hotel were all blamed upon Muslims. Once again, upon further investigation, one of the bombings was conducted 
by a Kashmiri who had been held in prison for the better part of 12 years. And as a condition for his release, he was called in to conduct this particular operation. The bombing of the parliamentary building. And then as far as the other two bombings are concerned, investigation into the matter, and I'm not going to go into any details, you can read about this at your own leisure. But the other two bombings were conducted by Hindu nationalists and blamed upon Muslims. And once again, they're taking advantage of the stereotype that all Muslims are terrorists. And so they blamed certain elements in the country of Pakistan, which happens to be their neighbor, for conducting these bombings. The objective here, once again, is to either ethnically cleanse the Muslims from that country, which is not, in and of itself, it's not an easy task, given that there are 250 Muslims over there, or to relegate them to a status that is equivalent to the untouchables in that society, or to make them into basically 250 million servants who do all of the jobs that the upper class Hindus are not willing to do. That was the objective, and in order to accomplish this objective, label all of these people terrorists. Once again, the public face suggests that this is the largest democracy in the world. But turn around and look at their actions. And we see the Israeli example repeating itself all over again. What do they think? They're trying to hide something from God. <coughs> Next example. Libya. During the so-called Arab Spring, and for many, many years before it, Libya was labeled by these same Israelis and some of their imperial enablers. Libya was labeled as one of the key state sponsors of terrorism. Now, now Libya may have been many things, especially its leader, its unelected leader, dictator, uh, Muammar al-Qadhafi, they may have been many things. But one thing they were not engaged in is terrorism against the West. Terrorism against Europe or terrorism against the, uh, against the United States. That's one thing that Libyans were not engaged in. They may have been engaged in terrorist activities against the Gulf monarchs, but not against the West. And yet, it was labeled as a worldwide sponsor of terrorism. Now, Libya was turned into a failed state or a wasteland 
by three women. The three women in the previous US presidential administration, the Obama administration. And the reason that I point to the fact that it was three women that led to the destruction of Libya. Uh, by the way, these three women are Hillary Clinton, Susan Rice, and Samantha Power. The reason that I point to these three women is because there is an issue now in the public domain that if more women were in the positions of rule, that we would have a much more peaceful and a much more compassionate world. And yet here are three women prosecuting the failed state status of Libya, an entire country. So it's not that having more women in positions of rule or having more men in positions of rule are exclusively men or exclusively women or some percentage of this or some percentage of that. It's not that that's important. It's how these people in positions of rule are socialized before they get that position. Are they socialized into a system of morals? Or they are, are, are they socialized into a system of national interest? And if they're socialized into a system of national interest and national aggression, then they're going to do what these women did. And if you want to ennoble the nature of women and the nature of men, then you ennoble that nature by conforming to Allah's standard, which is what ennobles human nature. What destroys human nature is aggression and personal interest, regardless of whether it exhibits itself in men or women. Nonetheless, that society was destroyed ostensibly because it was a terror state. And the reason that these three women gave is that this leader, Muammar al-Qaddafi, is going to getting ready to conduct a genocide of the likes of Rwanda. That's the reason that they gave. No proof for it. They just threw it out into the airwaves thinking that people are not going to question what they're talking about because we've spent billions upon billions of dollars and years upon years painting that guy as a devil on earth. And so now that we get ready to build a case on it because he's a devil, nobody's going to shed a tear if we got rid of him and destroyed his country. Who's going to shed a tear? Who's going to care? And in fact, when the, when the whole operation was going on, who did care? Who cares today? It's a failed state. Basically a wasteland. Whereas before it, it was at least contributing something like 1% of the world's GDP. And once again, we have a situation here. And uh, again, let me go over what was the, what was the real reason, the, the reason that you never saw in the headlines about destroying that country. Well, the real reason is, is that the leader of that country, Al-Qaddafi, he wanted and he was putting in, in place a process to have the African countries conform to a currency that's backed up by gold. And he communicated that broadly because, because he, he was not a person 
who was disposed to seeing the continent of Africa continue for generations upon generations as slaves, as debt slaves, as resource slaves. And so he wanted to do something for Africa. And this is one of the things that he decided to do. And so for that reason, in a sense, he was taken out. And at the time, the French president said that even though Libya only represented 0.4% of the world's GDP, the French president said that he's a threat to the world financial system. That's the real reason that you never saw in the headlines. And once again, the people who took him out and destroyed the country, they claim to be the citadels of truth and justice. And if you are, why not just say the truth in the public? Once again, the way that you project yourself differs from the way that you abuse your power. Last example, I have actually many more, but we don't have time to go into all of them. Or, or, or before I leave the case of Libya, one more thing to say about what's going on, what happened in Libya. If you notice in the Arab Spring, and it's important to bring these things up in a Jum'ah Khutbah, because we have to help each other connect the dots and make the connections. All of what's happening today is connected not only to the ayat of the Qur'an, but events are connected to the way that power is exercised in different parts of the world. And I know that in masjids like this, the person who's standing up to give the khutbah, he's not going to help you understand the world that you're living in. He's not going to make it easier from a thought point of view for you to navigate your future in this world. And that's why we feel that it's a responsibility, at least on this forum, to give out some of this information and to, and to, and to try to help ourselves connect the dots. But if you notice in the Arab Spring, the so-called Arab Spring, the governments that were overthrown or, or interchanged were the republics, not the monarchies. And there hasn't been a real analysis of why, the mon uh, of why the republics were targeted over the monarchies. And we don't see many Muslims asking this question to themselves either, because you have monarchies in the Muslim world all the way from Morocco to the Gulf. And largely these, these monarchies, you could call them monopolies also, but largely these monarchies were unaffected by the Arab Spring. But the republics, you had Tunisia, you had Libya, you had Egypt, there's Syria, there's Al-Iraq, all of these are republics. And in all of these places, there was either a regime change or an attempted regime change. The attempted regime change in Syria is still ongoing. And in order to sort of understand the reason for why this happened, we have to go back into history just a little bit. In the late 50s and early 60s, there was this thing that was established called the United Arab Republic, the UAR. 
which was a unification, a nationalistic unification, an Arab national unification between Egypt and Syria. And at that time, the nationalistic threat to, uh, to Israel was conceived as being a lot more acute and a lot more potent than the monarchies. In fact, Israel, even at that time, regarded these monarchies to be a pillar of support for the Zionist state, which they are even to this day. But insofar as these republics are concerned, especially in, in Abdul Nasser's Egypt, as far as the republics are concerned, there was a sense of greater civil expression. There was a sense of greater civil engagement. And when you allow these Muslims, and particularly the Arabs, a chance at greater civil engagement, one of the things they're going to see immediately and protest immediately is the situation in Palestine is the occupation and the colonization of Palestine. And that was happening in Abdul Nasser's Egypt and it was happening in Syria during the so-called United Arab Republic. And so all of these people, they got together and here I'm talking about sort of the, the, tripar the tripartite conglomeration of countries that are responsible for terrorism, which is the United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. So all three of these countries, they got together. At that time, Saudi Arabia was engaged in a war in Yemen, and, and Egypt was on the other side. This is in the late 50s, early 60s. And so these people thought, you know, well, the greatest threat to our existence, the monarchies in the Gulf, and Israel in the Levant, yeah, the greatest threat to our existence is this nationalism. Yeah, it could really turn into a serious threat unless we figure out some way to subvert it. And then in this so-called Six-Day War, the 1967 war, basically Abdel Nasser lost, nationalism, Arab nationalism lost, and Israel was secured. And so from that point forward, they always imagined that the chance for civil expression in a republic could turn into a mini Iran. And that is something they can't tolerate. And so in a sense, they turned all of these places either into failed states or tried to. They're still working on Syria. They tried to turn them either into failed states or faux monarchies, pretend monarchies. And Egypt is basically a monarchy. He's not a king, but a president for life is a king. As I said, there are many, many more examples. And I have actually many here. And we could go into a lot mu much more detail. But let's conclude this section of the khutbah and say, why is this important? Why is it important for us to know these details? Why is it important for us to talk about these things? You know, there are many Muslims that are out there. 
and there's a lot of them that are westernized and within this westernized class of Muslims that has in a sense lost their Muslim identity altogether there's a class of Muslims within that westernized body of Muslims that were at one time herded into Salafism and now that Salafism is being rejected by the power brokers in the world they're being herded into Sufism and if you can allow yourself to be herded in one area and you prove that to the power brokers they know that they can herd you into a different direction and that's what's going on right now and so these people actually through their leaders they come up and tell people like your speaker here or others who are saying the same kind of things that why do you always concentrate on what the enemy is doing why don't you guys go in and do something you ought to go in and do something and stop complaining about them and when you do something call us and I'm here I'm standing here to say that we are doing something for this label of terrorism is a barometer the more that your enemy accuses you and points the finger at you as being a terrorist that ought to tell you that the Muslims are doing something positive in the world for themselves for their neighbors and for the world and if they're not pointing the finger at you then you're guilty they are not doing anything but when your enemy accuses you when your enemy singles you out that means that it's cause to be happy because that means that you've actually done something to put him on notice that's why he's squealing But this doesn't mean that we ought to be scared. It doesn't mean that at all. Just because somebody is pointing the finger at us, what this requires from us is fortitude and patience. But again, fortitude and patience doesn't mean that we ought to sit in our armchair and be scared. What it really means is that we ought to recognize that there is a global Islamic movement out there. And that global Islamic movement is not represented by the camps that certain Muslims are being herded into. There is a global Islamic movement out there and we ought to commit to joining that global Islamic movement. For it's going to take the effort from every single one of us to keep that global Islamic movement on track. For we have noticed in the last 10 to 12 years that if we don't hold the leaders of the global Islamic movement accountable that they are liable to go off track and so it is the responsibility of all of us rank and file to hold that global Islamic movement on track and we can only do that by being committed to it and by being members of it
الحمد للہ والصلاۃ والسلام علی رسول اللہ Though this may not be obvious to all of us, the imperial order in the world is on the run. Anyone who can sort of seriously read Allah's guidance can see the signs. So we know that the imperial order is on the run. And there is nowhere on earth where the effects of that particular abdication of power, there's nowhere on earth that, that, that this is more evident than that kingdom in Arabia. Just a few days ago, the king and the crown prince issued a blanket pardon to all the soldiers, the invading soldiers of that country who've gone into Yemen, just issued a blanket pardon for all the crimes that they may have committed. And those are serious crimes, by the way. And they said that they did this so that they could appreciate the heroics of these soldiers. Now anybody who's been there, they know that wherever you go in that country, the Qur'an is rolling like a tape. Around the clock, 24-7. And so if anybody wants to sort of get this straight in their minds, they're trying to pardon, or they already did, they pardoned Muslim soldiers, or ostensibly Muslim soldiers, who went out and killed Muslim civilians in hospitals, in wedding parties, at funerals, inside of masjids. Muslim men, women, children, and babies. Now I don't know of an instance in the seerah and the sunnah of Allah's Prophet wasallam, where he pardoned a Muslim that went out and intentionally killed another Muslim. Now we haven't heard the word bid'ah for perhaps, you know, a decade. Where is that word in the airwaves today that this is a bid'ah? And there are many ayat that you can quote about this particular uh, so-called pardon, but you know one comes to mind. فَجَزَاؤُهُ جَهَنَّمُ فَغَضِبَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَلَعَنَهُ وَأَعَدَّ لَهُ عَذَابًا عَظِيمًا This is an ayah from Surah An-Nisa. I believe it's the 93rd ayah in Surah An-Nisa. That whoever killed another mu'min without cause, addressing Muslims, Whoever killed another mu'min without cause, then his end is in the hellfire to reside there forever. 
And he incurs Allah's anger and he incurs Allah's condemnation. Not to mention a very tortuous punishment. Okay, so this is, you know, for Muslims killing other Muslims. Okay, so they may say that, well, I was ordered to do this. All the blame goes to the crown prince. And all the blame goes to the king and to the royal family. I, you know, I'm just a soldier. You know, I just pressed a button. How was I to know they're just going to kill, you know, a hundred people or, you know, whatever other number that we've killed. How was I to know that? I mean, just following orders. Well, they really love hadith in that kingdom over there. So let's, you know, quote for them a hadith. Again, which is, again, it's probably rolling around the clock over there all the time. Where Allah's Prophet said, and again, this is a consensual hadith. It comes through many different chains of narrations. And so there's no disagreement about its, uh, uh, about its authenticity. And the, and the hadith goes like this in Arabic. لا طاعت في معصية الله إنما الطاعت في المعروف There is no obedience to the disobedience of Allah. There is only obedience to what is understood universally, predominantly, and commonly to be right. To the ma'roof. So now you tell me, is the largest cholera epidemic in human history a ma'roof? It's bringing 26 million people in the poorest Arab country to the brink of starvation. Is this a ma'roof? Throwing bombs at masjids, at hospitals, at factories, at seaports. Is this a ma'roof? For every 100 people killed, with 98 of them being civilians, is that a ma'roof? The second thing is that, the second sign that imperialism is on the run, This kingdom is expelling all of its foreign workers. By the end of this year, some one and a half million foreign workers would have been expelled out of Saudi Arabia. And in a sense, the way that again, you know, uh, keeping the ayah that was quoted earlier in mind, trying to do it in a sneaky way, so they can just, you know, get into the public and say, well, you know, they're just leaving on their own. But what's forcing these foreign workers to leave? Well, first of all, they're not paid a living wage. And thus, if you raise government service taxes on them, they can't afford to stay. And so one of these so-called service taxes, and again, you know, the word bidara ought to occur to you in your mind. One of these service taxes that by 2020, a wage earner will have to pay $106 per dependent per month 
So for instance, if you have a wife and four kids, you'd have to pay something like $540 a month as a government service tax. That means that, you know, for a typical, you know, worker family, it would be something on the order of six and a half thousand dollars a year. These workers already do not earn a living wage. Do you think that they can afford six and a half thousand dollars? To just to be able to stay there and afford to work? In a sense, they're giving money back to the state. They're giving more money to the state than they're earning. And then on top of that, they put on a $10,000 residency tax per year. That all foreigners who are only given actually one year visas, that they have to pay a $10,000 residency tax. So the message that they're sending to the Muslim world, you know, all you poor riffraff Muslims, we don't want you here. But if you happen to be like a wealthy Muslim, oh yeah, you know, welcome. You know, come on. Or if you happen to be a wealthy person from another country, you know, we'll have you here. And so now you tell me, what model in the world are they following? Did they come up with this model on their own? They call it Saudiization. They've spent over the past 30 or 40 years, perhaps a few trillion dollars in financing and subsidizing the wars of occupation, the wars of imperialism, the wars of Zionism. And yet, they couldn't spend even a paltry billion dollars to improve the situation in their own society. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna al-tiba'a wa arina al-baatila baatilan warzuqna al-jtinaabah Allahumma aghfir lil-mu'minina wal-mu'minat al-ahyai minhum wal-amwat إنك قريب سميع مجيب الدعوات اللهم ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لا في خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر في هسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم عباد الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولا ذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة
الله أكبر الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله أيها الصلاة أيها الفلاة قد قامت الصلاة قد قامت الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر لا إله إلا الله